All right. Uh, welcome, everybody. My name is Christian. I'm the lead pastor here at City Light. I'm excited to get to talk about this, the problem of the Bible. If you're just joining us today, if it's your first time here today, um, I just want to say thank you for coming. We're excited to see you guys. And for the rest of you who continue to come week after week, really, it's quite amazing that you would do that. <laughs> so thank you. Um, did you like the cadre of people we displayed today? They were amazing, weren't they? Let's give them a hand. Good job, Ted and Brad. Um, so I'm telling you what, this is one of the hardest series I've ever had to teach. I feel like I'm writing a term paper every week in preparation for these things, and I'm, I really hope that you're appreciating it, and if you're not, just lie to me anyway and tell me how much it's changing your lives, okay? Um, so we're in a series called The Problem of God. We've been talking out of this book, The Problem of God, by Mark Clark. Um, we've done, uh, this is the fourth week, fourth topic, and we have one more topic coming next week, which is The Problem of Hypocrisy. Very excited. Um, Nathan Palkovich, some of you know him. Uh, he's on our um, pastoral team here at the church. He's going to be speaking on uh, the problem of hypocrisy next week. So if you've ever felt like, or if you have any friends who have felt like, you know, um, one of the reasons I can't believe in Christianity or Jesus is just there's too many evil things that have been done or everybody acts one way and says another thing. That's what he's going to be dealing with next week. So it's going to be great. Um, I want to just highlight this other book. So today we're talking about the problem of the Bible and questions that you may have had about the Bible or that you may still have about the Bible or friends of yours may ask you about the Bible. And honestly, you kind of don't know. And so you just hope that they don't ask you. Um, this is a great book to read if this stuff that we talk about today is interesting to you. Um, the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. It was written 20 years ago. Um, it's been updated since. And um, this guy was uh, an atheist. I've talked about him before. His wife uh, became became a follower of Jesus, and he kind of he had like an uh-oh moment. He thought things were going to get weird, but instead she became just a better person. And so he took a year off of work as an investigative journalist and applied the same stuff that you would apply to a legal case to the claims of Jesus. And through his research, um, he became a follower of Jesus. So uh, he outlines all of his interviews with different uh, scholars and, and people um, who are just experts in their field. It's fascinating. I reread parts of it in preparation for this week. So the problem of the Bible, we're going to be dealing with that today. And the issue with the Bible is what Christians think that the Bible is. So for instance, this verse in 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is God breathed. That right there is a difficult statement for, for anyone to really wrap their head around who weren't maybe raised believing this. And maybe you were raised in the church and you were told this is the word of God. It doesn't have any errors in it. It's always applicable and it's always true. And maybe as you went to college or you started uh, to run into other ways of thinking about things or maybe read some other ancient texts that you know are parts of other religions, you began to wonder, is this really true? Is this fanciful? Is it mythological? Is everything in there literal or is it mostly figurative? And yet, when you read this and when you talk to Christians who would, you know, would say that they're Bible-believing Christians, they're going to tell you that they believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that this is a message from God to us, and that it's useful for all these things here. It's useful, really, for living your life. So there's questions about this. How can we claim that this old text that's thousands of years old is from God, is, is breathed from God. Haven't people messed with it? Aren't there mistakes and contradictions in it? Aren't there, you know, hasn't mythology grown? Aren't there thousands of years between when it was written and the copies that we have? So we're going to deal with all those things. And I'll tell you, um, 
It was years ago that I read The Case for Christ, and it deals very in-depth with all these issues. And I was already a pastor, so I was like, you know, a professional Christian. So I was working, that, that was my job. And as I read that book, something just, for me, settled at a different level. And I just remember finishing that book and thinking, man, I should become a Christian. Like, this is, this is, this is it. Like, this makes so much sense to me. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this today, and we, we have a lot of like intellectual head knowledge stuff we're going to do. Uh, just one more quick caveat. If you're new here, um, you've only been coming to this series, or today's your first day, I just have been saying this. Not all of our teachings are, are this kind of heady. We, we do deal with the heart and life and practical application too, so please keep coming. We'll get there eventually. Okay, uh, so we're going to deal with four common questions that people have. Um, about the Bible. The first one is, hasn't the Bible been changed over time? So you're hopefully going to find yourself in one of these. Either you've wondered it, because I know I've wondered all these things, and I'll be honest with you, just like total transparency here, as I was preparing for this, I ran into some things that I didn't know. (laughs) And I was like, oh, wow, you mean the end of Mark is probably not the real ending of Mark? Did you know that? We're going to get there. It was a little bit like, whoa, I better read about that before I talk about it. So we all have these questions, and we've all been asked these questions by our friends. And so I think um, there's a verse that Paul writes where he says, be ready to give a defense basically for what you believe at all times. And so this is, if if you're a follower of Jesus, this is to to give you some some reason, some logic, and some information behind what you believe. And if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, this is hopefully going to give you a bit of peace as you read the Bible, knowing that what you're reading is authentic. So hasn't the Bible changed over time? So this is from... um, uh, someone who challenges the veracity of the Bible. This is a quote from his book. We know very little about Jesus. The first full-length account of his life was St. Mark's Gospel, which was not written until about the year 70, which is some 40 years after his death. By that time, historical facts had been overlaid with mythical elements, which expressed the meaning Jesus had acquired for his followers. Now, I'm going to take issue right away with the 40 issues being long enough to have mythology creep into a story. Um, so we're, we'll get to that in a little bit, but I just want to point that out, all right? Um, but here's, here's three reasons that, we're going to give, that I'm going to give you that should support that we know what we're looking at is actually very, very accurate to what the original writers wrote. So um, you understand that like it, the Bible that we have now was not the actual first handwritten Bible, right? These were, it's a, it, the Bible itself is a collection. It's like a library. It's a collection of some eyewitness accounts. It's a collection of some narrative. It's a collection of some poetic work. And it's a collection of some letters from early church fathers, all put together into one book. And so how do we know that what we're reading now, for instance, if you open up to the, the letter to the Galatians, how do you know that's what was written by Paul to the church of Galatia? 2,000 years ago. So instead of me explaining this, I really like the way the guys from Alpha do it. Those of you who are in the Alpha course will recognize these guys. So this is just a two-minute clip from Alpha, and there's a graphic representation, graphical representation that I think helps. Now, of course, the New Testament was written a long time ago, so it's good for us to ask, how do we know that what we have now hasn't been changed over the years? And we can find an answer to that question through a science called textual criticism. Here's Peter and Jazzy to explain how it works. Okay, so textual criticism works by comparing ancient manuscripts to discover the original wording. Basically, the more copies of a manuscript there are, 
and the closer they are to the date of the original manuscript, the more confident we can be. For example, Herodotus and Thucydides were ancient historians who wrote in the 5th century BC. Now, the earliest copies we have of their writings are from around 980, so there's more than a 1300 year gap, and we only have eight copies of their writings. Yet, no classical scholar would doubt that these writings have come down to us in a form that's true to their original copies. And this is the case with many other ancient works as well. For example, Livy's Roman History, 900 year gap, with 20 copies. Caesar's Gallic War, 950 year gap, with 9 to 10 copies. And Tacitus, a thousand year gap, with just 20 copies. And then we come to the New Testament, and what we see here is that the time gap is significantly shorter. It was written between 40 to 100 AD, and the earliest manuscript was written as early as 130 AD, and there are 5,309 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin, and 9,300 others, making the New Testament totally unique amongst other ancient books. Textual critic F.J.A. Hort said this. In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. So, we can look confidently to what's written in the New Testament. All right, so I wanted to show that to you because that's much more exciting than me explaining it, but I think that that is valuable and actually amazing information that historians take. Uh, you know, the, the other works that they listed there, there's, they're not wondering whether they're authentic. And the time frames are so radically different. And so you can even press in a little bit further. Um, so the time between the original and the copy, you can even press in a little bit further to that. So we know already that this time frame was within a few decades instead of a few centuries. And we can talk about whether there was enough time for legend to creep in. And a lot of historians would disagree with that, that it, it's going to take hundreds of years for legend to creep into it. But the thing that's really cool, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a little bit, what's really cool is that these were written while people who were there at the original events were still alive. And so there's this internal credibility that you find in the writings, especially of the Gospels, the four eyewitness accounts, and the letters of the New Testament. But what's really neat is the time between, you can actually narrow it down a little bit further. So um, we're, uh, this is total like Bible nerd day. So if you're a Bible nerd, you're going to love today. If you're not, please come back next week, okay? But so just, just keep up, all right? So uh, there's four Gospels or the eyewitness accounts. One of them's Mark. Um, and Um, well, hold on. I got ahead of myself. And the book after that is called Acts. And Acts is kind of the book that recounts right after Jesus died and rose from the dead and went to heaven in the very beginning of the early church. And so Luke is the author of Acts, and he's also the author of the gospel, Luke. See how that works? All right, same guy. So he wrote Acts. At the end of Acts, we find Paul. He's keeping up with all these names. This is the exact opposite of what we normally do here at City Light, is throw out all these Bible names and Bible terms and stuff. So anyway, Luke's writing about the early church. Paul's one of the main characters. At the end, he's imprisoned in Rome. Not dead. He's in prison at Rome. At the end of the book, book ends. There's still more to be told. All right? So we can date that to around early 60s. Okay? And then we know that Luke wrote that book after he wrote the book Luke. So we can back that up a couple years. And we know that Luke based some of his content on the book of Mark. So we can back that up even more. So you're talking about the original writings being within three, ge three generations, sorry, three decades, because Jesus died at 33, right? So AD 33, this is being written in the 50s. So the window gets shorter and shorter, but you can go even more. And this is just fascinating to me. 
All right, you can go to, some of Paul's writings contain um, creeds. And what creeds were, I mean, you know, it, it, the Hebrew culture was an oral tradition culture. And so much of the stuff that got written down would have been said and taught by rabbis and by teachers and by the apostles over and over and over again. They would have said much of the same things. In fact, when you read the teachings of Jesus, and you might read a couple different accounts of the same teaching, and they're slightly different, that's probably because he gave that teaching 50 times in 50 different places, and someone heard it here and someone heard it there and they're piecing together part, different parts from different times that he talked about it, okay? So anyway, you've got Paul who wrote, wrote into a couple of his letters these creeds, these early things that they would repeat when they met as a church. And you can drive back to this one. This is really amazing in 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to read this. For what I have received, I passed on to you. So what he's talking about is when he first became a follower of Jesus. Now, if you know the history of Paul, he was a, um, a you know, a well-esteemed Jewish teacher, and he was persecuting the early church. So after Jesus died and rose again, um, he was persecuting the early church, trying to stop it. He saw it as a call. He saw it as something that was bad until he had a personal encounter, a supernatural encounter with Jesus. His life was changed. He turned his life towards Jesus, and he ended up going and spending some time in Damascus with believers there, studying and learning and praying together before he went out and started to teach on his own. So what he's talking about is, this is what I received. This is going to be two years after Jesus died. And this is what they were saying. So we're talking about, remember, just to to dial back into the point. We're talking about, was there enough time for legend to creep in? And what parts would be legend? Well, you know, the thing about him raising from the dead, right? Okay, so this is what they were talking about, the disciples, within a couple years of his death. This is what I received that was of first importance, the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the dead. Raised on the dead. That's not what it says. Raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of his brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Euphemism for dying. All right? Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. This is of utmost importance because this is what they were saying. This legend hadn't creeped in over 30 years, 50 years, 100 years. This is two years afterwards. This is the the most important thing. It is the crux of the early church's message. It wasn't like back then they were like, oh, you know, Jesus died, but we're going to obey some of his teachings. And then after 50 years, they were like, you know what, it would, you know, I, I, he was so great. I mean, he did miracles. And then after another 50, they were like, yeah, he was so great. He rose from the dead. No, we're talking like the early believers were getting, not, not only did they believe this, but they were getting killed for believing this. They were being put into courts and put to death for believing and teaching that Jesus died and rose from the dead. See, people weren't upset about Jesus saying, love your neighbor. They were upset about him saying he was God. That's the whole point of why he was crucified too. This is why it's difficult to understand what are you gonna do with Jesus once you understand that these, that this, the text of the Bible is accurate. All right, so did you follow that? So I found that to be one of the most fascinating parts of this talk. I'm sorry, okay. All right, so just basically, this is... Uh, 
Uh, Craig Blomberg, a New Testament scholar, says that's not later mythology from 40 or more years down the road, as Armstrong suggested. A good case can be made for saying that Christian belief in the resurrection, though not yet written down, can be dated to within two years of the very event. All right, so the number of copies, the time between, internal credibility is fascinating when you think about if we were to purposely write a fantastical, mythological account of this guy and make him sound bigger than he was, we wouldn't do some of these things. So one of the, one of the internal credibility things is that they put specific people into the text who would still be alive right it's be like man church was so great today i really loved when brad talked from stage and you all would be like brad did not talk from stage christian's a liar but i mean he did but like if i was lying right this this is an example. There's many, many, many of these. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Just in case you don't know which Simon he's talking about. Right? I mean, this, this is amazing to think about, the amount of detail that the writers put in. Was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So if you were like a skeptic 20 years later, and you're like, wait a second. You could go be like, hey, Simon, are your kids Alexander and Rufus? Yeah, yeah, I want to ask you a question. Did you carry Jesus' cross? And Simon would be like, yes, people keep coming here and asking me that. Yes, I carried his cross. You know, he put it on his door. Yes, I carried the cross. Please don't knock. All right? So the names of people, also counterproductive content. There's so much counterproductive content in the Bible, and it's one of the things I love most about the Bible. For instance... Okay, there's a time when uh, Jesus goes into a town and it's, he, sa- he says he can't do healings there and miracles there. And so, what? You're God. How can you not do healings, right? Or he, there's a time when before he goes to the cross, he's in the garden praying and he's having basically like a panic attack and he's crying out to God saying, God, please don't make me do this. What? That's not the picture of Jesus that we would write into this account. Or Jesus hanging on the cross and he's like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wait a second. The author of that book has just spent the last 15 chapters trying to convince us that Jesus thinks he's God and then he's on the cross crying out to God? There's all sorts of counterproductive content. How about Peter, who's the rock of the church, right? How about the time Jesus called him Satan? That's kind of weird. Have you ever thought about that? Like if we were, if we were like, hey, we need to make sure Peter looks really good because Peter, he's the guy. Like he's the rock of the Gentile church. We are going to build our church on this guy. He's got to come off looking great. I mean, there's the time he walked on water with Jesus for a couple steps. That's pretty good. But there's also the time he denied Jesus three times. That, that doesn't look very good. And the time Jesus called you Satan. Can't you imagine John hanging out with Peter after the fact being like, remember when Jesus called you Satan? You know, just like ribbing him, you know? You know, he only ever called me beloved brother. That's it, you know? <laughs> There's all sorts of counterproductive content which adds to the internal credibility. So, that was question number one. Come back next week. All right, so aren't there a bunch of contradictions and mistakes? This is a wonderful question and something we should definitely think about. Uh, This is another uh, skeptic of the Bible. He says the New Testament copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. In fact, he puts the number around 300 or 400,000 mistakes. What you need to understand is what he's talking about there are small um, like basically what we would call typos. Obviously, they weren't typing, but small typos. And what he does when he counts them is if you made a typo in this manuscript and then I copied it a thousand times, he counts that as a thousand. So someone actually took his book, not that I'm trying to like be mean to him or anything, but like he had 16 errors in his books and he had 100,000 copies made. So 
1.6 million errors, right? So did I do that math right? It's tough, top of my head. Uh, that's how they count those mistakes. So the real question is, are there any mistakes that legitimately change the content or the theology or the doctrine of the Christian church? And the answer is no. There's only two places where there's so, any sort of discrepancy that's bigger than a couple words. All right, so you're talking about like even word order, and this is something that you know maybe this is getting a little too in the in the weeds here. But word order in in Greek and Hebrew doesn't matter like it does in English, right? So if we said the man ate the dog or the dog ate the man, that matters. I don't know why either would eat either, but I don't know why that was the first thing I thought of either. But if you but it doesn't matter in Hebrew, you would know what they meant. That's the worst worst illustration of my entire life of preaching. I've never eaten a dog, just to be clear. I just want to make sure you know that, okay? Whew. All right, I wish sometimes you could just rewind in life, but you can't. Um, so the New Testament, as we have it now, is 99.5% pure. But there is a 0.5% that we do have struggles with. And here's what's great about Christianity and Christian scholarship. We just tell you. So if you read your Bible, you will find places, and there will be footnoted and say, we're not sure what this means. This word probably wasn't in there. Here's this whole section that we're not sure if it even belongs. So these are the two really big passages, right? The whole end of Mark, most scholars that I've read about don't think that the end of Mark was in the original thing that Mark wrote. They don't think that Mark ended it at verse 8, because if you read verse 8, it says Mary walked away sad and discouraged, the end. Like, no, that's probably not how he ended it. So he probably, the ending was lost. And so people knew that in the early church. So they took some information from the other accounts and put it in there. If you really look at it, you can kind of tell the voice is a little bit different and, uh, and the style is a little bit different. So it's probably not authentically in there. So if you read your Bible, that whole section is italicized. And it says the earliest manuscripts don't have this. Does it change anything? No. Because Jesus resurrects before that <laughs> if you go read it he's alive and then they just kind of finish the story plus you have the other eyewitness accounts plus the early creeds that i already showed you and then there's this john 7 this is the story of the adulterous woman now this is not this is in earliest manuscripts so it's not um, contested that it wasn't in there it's just in different places so that story moves around for some reason they just took the way where they thought it meant uh fit best and put it but that'll be a italicized and read about it so look this is like Let's just be upfront about it. Are there mistakes? I mean, besides typos, there's a couple things we're not sure about, but they don't impact the doctrine and the teaching of the church. Isn't that good to know? Because you can get on like Reddit or whatever, and you can read lots of things, lots of people say, attacking the church, but this is true. And you can read New Testament scholars who aren't hiding things. They'll be upfront about, yeah, this is, we don't understand this, we don't understand this. I mean, there's even archaeological evidence that if you wait, you know, like there was a, uh, what is it? Man, this is off the top of my head, but John talks about, in the book of John, um, the, this, this porch, the, the Pool of Bethesda or something like that, that had colonnades, and those didn't exist. Archaeologically, they had never found them, and so people thought John was just making it up. And then, like, 20 years uh, ago, they did another dig, and they found it. They found the, the pool, and they found the colonnades, and they found the words, and, like, okay, sometimes you have to wait. There's some things we just don't know, but nothing dramatic is impacted. That's good to know. How about contradictions? Um, so, yeah, contradictions, I'm going to make this one a little bit, little bit quicker, but for the most part, the contradictions that you would find in the New Testament um, are going to be things that can be explained by study, 
Okay, so things like this. Uh, one account of Jesus raising from the dead, they say that there's one angel there. Another account, they say that there's two angels there. Okay, so if you want to, you can get really upset about that and you can say, oh my gosh, we should throw the whole Bible out. Or you could decide that like, if Josh and I, hey Josh, uh, we, we went to a, a sporting event together, we might describe it slightly differently. Right, if just because Josh said there's one angel there, like if there's two angels there, let's just use some logic, there also has to be one. Right? Okay, it's not like they say there's only one. Okay? Also, like the, another, another contradiction is, you know, how did, how did Judas die? So one, one says that he went and hung himself, another one says that he, he fell to the ground. Well, yeah. Those are both probably true. Right? He hung himself and then he fell to the ground when either the rope broke or someone cut him down. They aren't, it's not like it says he hung himself and, uh, you know, I don't know, what do you do? What other things you could do back then? Got run over by a donkey, right? There weren't like two totally different ways of dying. So most contradictions as you read and study, you can, you can find that they're not really contradictions. The Old Testament, that's a much deeper discussion that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just breeze through right here. But there are some things about God in the Old Testament that don't seem to line up with God of the New Testament. And there's a whole bunch of rules for the nation of Israel, and there's a whole bunch of rules for ceremonies that don't apply to us anymore because Jesus established a new covenant in God. That's like a whole hour-long teaching. One of the concepts that's really helped me personally is this concept of the progressive revelation of God, that, that God is revealing himself in fullness throughout the timeline of the Old Testament into the New Testament, and the culmination is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So if you want to know about God, you can look at Jesus. Okay, I could talk about that for a long time. We're not going to. Wasn't it arbitrarily put together? Didn't they leave out sources for political reasons, right? So we had these letters surfacing around these, you know, who put it together and said, this is the Bible, right? So it was some monks and priests and whatnot who did that in the second century and then again in the fifth century. Here's how I'm going to explain this, best way I can explain this. Let's take a vote right now. If I told you to pull out your phones, we're going to do a survey. What are the most, uh, like the top sports in America, the top leagues in America? We would all agree that it's the NFL, NBA, MLB, and the other one, NHL. Just kidding, right? We would all agree those are the top four. There would be very little, if no, disagreement if I said we're the top four sports in America. Now, if I said we're the top sports in America, some of you might try to stick soccer in there. So there might be some disagreement about soccer. Maybe, you know, after, after a few years, you'd be like, sure, I'll throw soccer in there. There would be no disagreement about, um, oh my gosh, it just, what's the thing where you, 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 you push the thing and you, shh, curling, yeah. I was watching that yesterday. Everybody ever watch curling? That sport is fascinating, all right? So for some of you, you might find it fascinating but no one's going to agree that it's one of the top sports in America. Can we agree? Someone's really mad. They're like, I don't like this logic. Okay, this is basically how the Bible was put together. And I love how this guy says it. The canon, that's what they call the established list of the Bible, is a list of authoritative books more than it is an authoritative list of books. They just basically recognized what was. Okay? These documents didn't derive their authority from being selected. Each one was authoritative before anyone gathered them together. That's why there was so little disagreement. And and I'm not going to go into this, but there's basically seven um, of the smaller letters like 3 John and and Hebrews and a couple others that there was, they took a little bit longer to be put in. 
Okay, but the vast majority of books were all agreed upon immediately. And that's just true. So it wasn't, you know, think about this. They're, the early churches, you know, this amazing, miraculous thing has happened. Uh, they've got this commission from Jesus to reach people, and they're starting to reach people, and then they have to start building structure around it. Just like we do, we planted this church, more people start coming, we need to build structure around it. We start adding teams, more people come, we need to add more teams, we need to add people to teams, we need to add training, we need to add classes, right? As an organization grows, the organization grows. So as they're growing, they're like, oh, we need to, we need to write some of these down, we need to copy some of these things, we need to add some of these things. And as that happens over a couple hundred, you're not talking like thousands of years, talking a couple hundred years, people come to know, yeah, well, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, I mean, there's, there's the, the letters that Paul wrote to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? We have those. They've been circulated. And you can even read in some of those letters that they refer to themselves as scripture that should be sent around to all the churches. And so it wasn't some, you know, some, some political fighting, you know, it's going to be difficult to decide. I want this one. I have more money than you, so I get this one in here. No. These people were people of good hearts who were just recognizing what already was. I think that's a big one. Okay. Um, you, also, you really want to see that slide I skipped, didn't you? You're like, Gospel of Thomas? Okay, I'll, let's go there. All right, so, wait, before you read it. Um, <laughs> so, there's the works that aren't included, by and large, think about this were written a lot longer afterwards. A lot of them are named after people who were really important so that they seemed important. And a lot of them have mistakes in them that contradict the flow of everything else. And a lot of them have mythological elements in them. Isn't that what we're so upset about? We're so afraid. This is what I, this is what I thought was ironic. We're so afraid that that's in the Bible, yet we're really mad that that didn't get in the Bible. Right? Aren't we glad that those got excluded? And basically the argument of New Testament scholars is the books that got excluded are the books that excluded themselves. So for instance, the, the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas ends with a note saying, let Mary go away from us because women are not worthy of life. Don't you wish that was in the Bible, everybody? Doesn't that jive with the Jesus that you know and love? All right, Jesus is quoted saying, lo, I shall lead her in order to make her a male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling all of you males. For every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the kind of stuff that God excluded. You're welcome. Okay. I was told if it doesn't work that I need to hit it really hard. Ha ha. That worked. Okay. Lastly, isn't the Bible culturally regressive? Um, so obviously there's some issues in the Bible that you might read today and that might make you uncomfortable because of where culture has gone to. And I would say there's a little bit of a caution in this one, okay? Um, I think that we can swing the pendulum on culture two ways that would both be incorrect. One would be that we just take uh, what the Bible says written to that culture and just slam it on top of our culture regardless of any nuance, all right? The other way that would be incorrect is to take our culture and force it on the Bible and not let the Bible speak to our culture at all. I think both of those are the wrong way to do it. And what we need to do is live in the tension of the fact that this was written to a culture, but we're in another culture, but there are truths that transcend culture. And that's really what we need to find is the truths that transcend culture. So just an example, one of them is slavery. Like people have been upset that there's slavery in the Bible. Well, this was written during a time where um, you would go outside and 50% of the people you would see outside would be slaves. It was, it was as normal in society as cars are in society today. And it would have been seen as, like, um, 
impossible to get rid of as cars feel today, okay? And so there are some writings where um, they talk about how do masters and slaves interact. But here's what's fascinating. Now, just remember, the disciples weren't called to be a social reforming movement. They were called to preach salvation from your sins and eternal life in the name of Jesus. That's their call. But the message of the gospel challenges the institutions of society. So already we see this. Slaves obey your masters with respect and fear. Just a few verses later, and masters treat your slaves in the same way. Why? Because in Christ, we're all the same. And that's the radical new concept. In fact, Paul wrote, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. This, guys, is one of the most radical verses in the Bible. It attacks three of the most powerful institutions that cause division and separation in their modern time. In fact, there's also a book that I'm not going to get into right now. There's a whole book in the Bible. It's one chapter long, so it's kind of small. That Paul writes to this guy Philemon. And he was uh, a friend of Paul's. And one of his slaves had run away. His name was Onesimus. And this, when you run away as a slave, you can be punished severely when you come back. And this guy, Onesimus, had somehow met Paul somewhere and had befriended Paul and then had started to minister to Paul while Paul was in jail. And Paul convinces Onesimus to go back to Philemon. And when he writes Philemon, oh, we'll just go ahead and do it. Why not? We're already going to be late. He says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. It's powerful. It's like you can see Paul wrestling with the the right way to handle this situation because there's the reality of the kingdom of God and there's the reality of the world they lived in. and, And how do you make those two things work together? And it's radical that he's saying, listen, you have the right to charge this guy. You have the right to be upset. But I want to remind you that you are saved by grace and he is saved by grace. And so you might be slave and master, but you're also brother. In fact, that's more important that you're brother. And it's radical how he's trying to work that out. And I love just the, the Christian ethic here is just so powerful. If, if he owes you anything, just charge it to me. I'd rather have you guys just have, have relationship again. It's just powerful all along. So in closing, um, let's have the band come up. Yeah. I just want to share two minutes about what the Bible means to me. Because that's a bunch of, like, up here. And I just want to tell you that for me, I, I fell in love with, with the Bible when I was 14 years old. I know that sounds weird to fall in love with a book. But I just started to find so much truth that applied to my daily life. It helped me through high school. It helped me through college. It's helped me through being a parent, having a job, being a friend. The Word of God really comes alive as you allow it to speak into your life. And I've found that for me, and I just was going to talk about this longer, but we're, um, th- these things come to me. I find inspiration in the Word of God. I find that God, as I read the Bible, lifts my vision higher out of the mundane, get by day by day, and into the bigger things that God wants to do in and through my life. I find that God challenges me as I read the Bible to be a better person. He shapes me. He takes my character. I mean, there's times when when you read it, you want to not read it. You want to disagree with it because it's confronting your selfishness and it's confronting your need to have everyone like you. I'm mean, just talking about myself right now. Um, you know, and it's, it's confronting your anger problems. Anybody else want to volunteer? Um, and as you read it, it's like being pruned like a plant, like Jesus talks about. It's like it starts to, sh- you know, sh- uh, 
slowly shave off parts of your character and refine you to become more like Jesus. I find hope in the Bible. The message of life is found there. And it's also a foundation. You see Jesus himself even referred to, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is this power when you read the word of God. And so I want to just encourage you today, if you struggle with the veracity of the word of God, don't throw it out. Don't say, well, there's these mistakes. I'm just going to throw it out. No, wrestle with this. Wrestle with it. Research it. Read it. Talk to people. Talk to me. If you, if you don't struggle with the veracity, but you struggle with finding application in it or reading it and getting anything out of it, don't give up. Grow into it. Start small. Start investing. It'll pay off in the end. Okay. We're going to do one more song. Um, what we do here at City Light After Teachings is we do a response time. And so during the response time, we're going to do a couple things today. We're going to, you can sing your, the song if you want to. You can get prayer. So if you are someone who struggles with reading the Bible and you would like that to grow in your life, or if you're struggling in any way today, physically, if you're ill, if you're emotionally struggling, if you're having a hard time at work or in relationships, we love to pray for each other. And we're actually doing a radical new thing today. We're going to pray on this side of the room today. All right, so if you go over there, we're not going to pray for you, no matter how badly you want it, okay? So on this side, we thought maybe it would be nice, like maybe it's a little intimidating because people walk around over there. This is the prayer side now, okay? Also, if you want to take communion, the, last, the first Sunday of every month we take communion. Communion's right there. Um, if you're new to Christianity or church, communion is a symbolic thing that we do to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so you can go take communion as we sing this song, bring it back to your chair. So let's all stand together. We're going to do this last song. Get prayer, take communion, and then we'll close out with a prayer at the end. God, thank you that... Um, Thank you for this series, God, that's building our foundation, that's answering some tough questions, God. Um, I thank you that your word stands up to the test of time. I thank you that your word is a light to our path in life. God, thank you that it's relevant. Thank you that it challenges us. Thank you that it inspires us, God. I pray that we would, as a community, grow in our appreciation and application of the word, God. While we're praying, if you just we do this every week, I just want to give you a chance. If you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never said, yes, I want to give my life to following Jesus, you know, maybe you've heard these claims before, but it made sense today for the first time, just with everyone else's eyes closed. If you just raise your hand so that I can see it, I'm just going to pray for you. Not, you don't have to come up front or anything, but if you just raise your hands, or one hand. <laughs> All right, if you raised your hand, I'm just going to pray a prayer that you can repeat in your heart. And then um, there's a card on your way out on that table that I just ask you to fill out and drop at the welcome table and I'll, I'll just shoot you an email tomorrow. So let's pray. If you want to pray that prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you're the son of God. I believe that the gift of salvation is something I could never earn. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit Forgive me of my sins. Amen.